Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available for free, more than 570 episodes and counting. It's all free. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this show, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer can do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. My sunglasses. What a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded to see what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. How's it going? Hello. (laughs) How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for tuning in. I have Richard Chim on the program today. He has a new novel out on Soft Skull Press. It is called King of Joy. And uh, I had a great time meeting Richard in person for the first time. This is his second appearance on the podcast. We spoke over the transom a few years ago, but uh, this time around he was in town on tour. He came over and sat down with me, and it was just uh, delightful. So you're going to hear that in just a moment. I do have some mail that I want to get through. Uh, The first letter comes from a listener named Thomas who says, Dear Brad, I work with a couple of guys who have face tattoos. They're good dudes. I think it's the really clean-cut, shirt-tucked, buttoned-up guys you got to look out for. Signed, Thomas. I mean, I can't argue with that. I think there's some truth to it. And I'm also racking my brain. Did I make a joke at the expense of people with face tattoos? I'm sorry if I did that. If you have a face tattoo, I don't mean to... uh, pigeonhole you it's like you know it's kind of like an easy like low-hanging fruit kind of joke like if you have a face tattoo it's one of those life decisions that's hard to live down you know what i'm talking about but uh, i have nothing against people with face tattoos if you have a face tattoo and you're a good person great and i think what uh, thomas is saying about the buttoned up guys being the ones you really got to look out for there can be some truth to that or not I'm always, I have like this, uh, discomfort around people who are super competitive. Like those guys, you know, if we're going to be working in this particular, uh, 
vain if we're thinking in these terms. Like some, you know, these guys who are super buttoned up, every I is dotted, every T is crossed. They're biohacking themselves. They're super fit. You know, it's just like, holy cow. I find myself like preemptively exhausted. That's what it does to me. Like I, like I think that the, uh, the more natural Darwinian response or like maybe the more, uh, user-friendly Darwinian response would be to react or respond to that kind of, uh, behavior by uh, competing with it. Right. But for me, it's like, just, it just lets, it's like the air has been let out of my heart. I'm just like, Oh God, I just need to go lie down for a moment. I'm tired. <laughs> people exhaust me. And I got to say, I often have that feeling when I'm moving through life, like just walking around, watching everybody going places in their cars, talking on their phones. Not, not, not that I don't do these things too, but when I'm observing it, I'm just like, where's everybody going? Like, don't you realize you're going to die? Like, what are we doing? So thank you, Thomas, for writing to me. I appreciate it. Uh, a listener named Franco writes to me. He says, hi, Brad. I've been going through the archives of the show for a couple of months now, and I just wanted to reach out and say how much I appreciate your efforts with the Other People podcast. To be honest, the end of 2018 was really rough for me. I decided to follow some advice I heard from a lot of other people guests and stop trying to use my writing as a source of income to let it instead be something that I do for the love of it. While I ended up writing more this year and last year than I ever have in my life, I've also gone through incredible periods of doubt. I see friends from my undergrad program going off to get their MFAs while I work on learning a whole new set of skills in the form of a job and a degree in the helping services. It's been really hard not to feel like an imposter, like I'm not doing the writing thing all the way and to have the motivation to keep going with much of anything. Your podcast has helped me uh, break out of that mindset. I've realized through listening to you and your guests that there really is no quote-unquote correct way to be a writer. You just have to write and have discipline with your writing. Signed, Franco. Uh, well, I, the only thing I would add, Franco, is that you have to read too. Like, I, what do I always go back to? It's like when people ask me what I've learned from this show, talking to all these writers, I boil it down to three things. One, don't do it for the money. Two, read a lot. Three, write every day or close to it. That's really it. I think as writers, we credential ourselves and you can't really fake it. You've either done the work or you haven't. You've either done the work as a reader and it shows up on the page or you haven't. And it shows up on the page. You've either done the work in front of the uh, keyboard or in front of the blank, uh, in front of the blank page, or you haven't. Either way, it shows up. But nobody blesses you and makes you a writer. You make yourself a writer. And if you do that through an MFA program, fine. If you don't, fine. And frankly, you know, going uh, like a. Uh, taking the road less traveled and doing something different than getting your MFA in creative writing might lead you into a more interesting set of possibilities. I mean, I can tell you that uh, here I am in my forties and recently, uh, like I'm still trying to figure my shit out. And recently I was thinking like, maybe I should go back and get a degree and become like a counselor. 
uh, you know, just because I like the only thing that I'm really naturally any good at is just talking to people. So I hear you. I, th- I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming too, that when you talk about uh, getting a degree and getting a job in the helping services, that it has some therapeutic uh, connotation, but I'm right there with you. And I, you know, I, I have a friend who became a, a therapist and it wound up helping her writing. It certainly didn't hurt it. And really whatever it is that you do. I mean, look at Bud Smith, but you know, Bud is out there. He's got a union job. He's working what at like a nuclear power plant or something. People do all sorts of things to make ends meet while they write their books. And if you really are a writer and you really can't not do it, then you'll do it. And as far as, you know, the whole money thing goes, I just think from an enjoyment standpoint, especially if you're working in a literary vein or if you're a poet or something to go into it with all of this pressure around breadwinning just poisons the process. It's too much. It's, and and it's far too statistically unlikely that you're ever going to make more than a few bucks on your writing. Not that it can't, you know, not that it can't happen. Of course it can. There's plenty of examples of people who have sold millions of copies of their literary fiction or their literary nonfiction. And, uh, that's great. But I feel like when that happens, there's something cosmic at work and there's a strong element of chance involved. And if you want to drive yourself crazy, you try to thread that needle and be that one and put all that weight on yourself while you're composing. I think the happier warriors that I've met through, uh, you know, this podcast have been the ones who just did it because they had something to say. And if the book wound up finding a big readership, it was kind of a, uh, you know, it was kind of magic. Not that you don't try to advocate for your book, not that you don't go out and talk to people like me or write guest blogs or what. <laughs> try to build a platform, whatever it is you're supposed to do to advocate for your book. Like doing all those things is fine and appropriate. Uh, I think uh, that's what I would do. I mean, you spend all that time working on a book, you want it to find a readership. So it's good to do everything you possibly can to help it. But at some point you've got to let it go. And really the truth of the matter is that it comes down to uh, like word of mouth, one reader passing on the book or word about the book to another reader And, uh, on a a deeper level, there's an element of magic involved. It's timing. It's cosmic. I I don't think in nearly 600, uh, interviews that I've done that I've gotten much closer to the truth than with that. So, uh, I appreciate the kind words, Franco. Good luck to you. And, uh, just keep doing your work. Let the cards fall. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. 
The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Richard Chim. His new novel, King of Joy, is available now from Soft Skull Press. It was such a good time uh, getting to see Richard and talk to him, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Richard Chim, and his novel, One More Time, is called King of Joy. You know, I like. Um, I first started writing the book, actually. I'm going to sound like a major stoner, but I got really high and watched um, Carney Corinne's Spring Breakers. Um, and was so stimulated by the film. I wrote, like, the first scene, which is, like, just the main character, Corvus, watching another character, Amber, burn down a tree. And once I had the character, Corvus, um, I kind of proceeded to do a novel. Um, what was it about the character, Corvus, that opened it up for you? Just a, um, I heavily related to her. Uh, she's a very sad person. Um, it's actually an homage to... There's a book I really love called The Quick and the Dead by Joey Williams. There's a character in there that's also Corvus. And I, when I read it for the first time, I thought um, she was one of the saddest characters I ever read. And I wanted my Corvus to give kind of homage to that Corvus. So that's where the name comes from. Um, but yeah, I kind of had this general idea of a woman that was going through a great loss and um, what she, exactly how she kind of gets through that is exactly what the novel is. Yeah. It was fun to write too. It took but, a while. And, and, but I mean like, had you experienced any like great loss that you were relating to? Um, not, not similar to what she went through, but, um, I definitely, I'm definitely a sad, depressed person. So it was kind of easy for me to kind of work through my own periods of grief actually through that novel. Yeah. Have you been through a lot of loss? Um, here and there. Yes. Okay. I mean, we all are like, this is, I mean, I say this sort of selfishly and like, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah. Um, just cause I'm writing a griefy book. Isn't it? No, I know you are. <laughs> I'm like, I need to stop talking about it. But, um, I guess like the fact that you made it to the finish line and you found a way to do it that didn't, uh, feel suffocating. Um, I, I mean, did you experience any of that? Like, I feel like it's such a tonal struggle. Mm -hmm. Like I'm, I'm like trying to come up with a way to write it so that the, the reader isn't like, uh, doesn't feel like battered at the end of it or something. Totally. And I think that's a really good consideration. Um, I don't know. It goes back to, uh, an editor I really like. Her name's Kristen Iverson. She's an editor for Nylon. Yeah. She I know Kristen. Yeah. She's really wonderful. She articulated really well that she like reads, essentially she reads novels about grief not because she wants to feel more sadness but there's something about watching like um or witnessing like a strange narrative of someone surviving something incredibly weird and sad just to know someone else can survive it um so for me i think it was just providing another example into that weirdness in a way um but i mean like but specifically yeah like including 
weirdness or magical realism or elements of um, surreality. Right. You know, that is an important element to like, it's like the spoonful of sugar or something that makes the medicine go down. Like, is that kind of like what helped you crack it? The surreal aspect definitely helped me kind of, um, because I didn't want to beat the reader up. Um, there's almost so much suffering you could put the reader through. Um, I didn't necessarily <laughs> want to make the book entertaining, but you wanted to make the book uh, accessible in a way for the kind of the jumping out point to be, um, yeah, it is a novel about grief, but it's also a novel about like there's a hippo attack at the end of it. And I like Wait, that. A, hi a hippopotamus attack. Exactly right, sir. And, and when did that occur to you? How much pot are you smoking, Richard? <laughs> Maybe a little too much. Um, I actually read this Washington Post or article like years ago about a man surviving a hippo attack. And the article was so visceral, I like couldn't stop thinking about it. And I also knew once I kind of had those surreal elements in my head, I could make this novel work. Because th I think you do need to have a balance well, in my particular view, when I did this particular grief novel, I needed like a balance of like the surreal, not like a red herring to distract the reader, but just to have, um, because I think when we are in moments of grief, the, the details that are known to us in those moments are strangely vibrant and are kind of weird. It's that like, uh, truth is stranger than fiction kind of thing, um, uh, which kind of gave me more privilege to kind of go a little more adventurous and like where this novel went um like and i was i didn't feel like embarrassed to kind of go there because there were sad elements too um but i think i could you can ground those in very strange shiny objects yeah it's like it's weird terrain grief yeah unfortunately so but but also heavily relatable heavily relatable but uh like i think maybe that element of the uh grieving process is underplayed just how weird it is. Maybe it's because you're paying more attention or, you know, it sort of opens you up. And I think so, so you're noticing more. Yeah. You have to be more honest. Why though? Like, I guess you just, you're confronted with like the ultimate reality. So, well, if you're faking on the page, I think the reader can tell too. So it's like, to me, I always tell my students, it's about getting to the, like the truth of whatever your character is without being cliche. So you have to ask yourself really good questions and really strange questions as you kind of work scene by scene well, like what kinds of questions um like when we think what grief looks like um and you build out a scene i think you have to always ground or anchor that to um well scenes of like identity like for one my main character is not she is me but she's also not me um i'm a cis male she's not a cis male um I think she has a greater capacity for emotion than I do, which made her a great hero for the book. Um, but uh, because she is not me, I had to ask myself questions that would have to answer the truth of what her suffering might look like and how she would need to survive it or the methods she would need to take upon herself to survive it because she is who she is. It gets really complicated, but I did ask many questions while writing it just to make sure it's the it stayed authentic to whatever I thought she was going through. And before we get any further, I do want to ask you about this hippo attack that you read about. Yeah. Because hippos kill more people every year than sharks. Totally. They're like the third most uh, dangerous animal in Africa. Yeah. After like people and mosquitoes. Like, like incredibly powerful jaws. 
Yeah, gr- and really grumpy, like incredibly grumpy. Fast? Yeah, 35 miles an hour on land, I think. Oh, fuck. I know. They don't look like they could run that fast. I know, they're so cute, too, but they're also very territorial and dangerous. And they can basically, like, bite you in half. Yeah. So, and, yeah. So what happened in this attack that you read about? Well, one, I had no idea hippos could even do that. I was on the other... I think the reasons why they, they're they so... Um, the death rate is so high with hippos or killing people is people heavily underestimate them. Um, so I always think of them as, like, really cute creatures, which they are. But, like, they're like folks out on safari that think the same thing, and they get too close, so then they get... Um, yeah, rampage by hippos that are incredibly territorial. Is it usually like land-based attacks or people like swimming? and In the water, usually like um, their boat gets capsized. That's what the Washington Post article referred to. This man that used to take folks on like safari trips and they went on the water and their boat capsized. And then the next thing he knew, he was like essentially inside the mouth of a hippo. And that was, uh, it was one of the most, yeah. He was so visual, but I also thought it was... Uh, Something out of Jaws or something. I just never knew that they had that capacity. And did he, and he survive? He survived it, yeah. With what injuries? I think he had like, I think he had like an amputated limb. Um, at one point, he saw his own lung like floating out of his body. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm sorry, sorry, bro. <laughs> no, like I, I always say, like you know, the end of a life is going to be difficult, probably no matter what, on some level. Right. Like, please God, don't let me be a meal. Exactly. You know, just to get eaten alive. Holy shit. He survived, though. I know, but still. Yeah. I guess, like, I mean, what was his attitude like afterwards? Did you get a sense? He had mad respect for the hippo after that. (laughs) 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 Which then, yeah, I did too after that. Well, yeah. I mean, and you owe that hippo the, uh, you know, part of your book. I do, yeah. All my friends always gift me, like, hippo things now, too. It's really quite lovely. Like my rooms, are, my rooms filled with like hippo memorabilia. It's like it's like your luck. It's like your it's like a totem or yeah. like a uh, talisman. Kind of, I'm like tied to it. I feel quite lovely about it. You think there are going to be more hippos in your work as like a recurring motif? I actually was joking about it with um, a couple of friends a couple of days ago. But I think I'm working on a novella in the perspective of the hippo in the book. Um, but like maybe before all this happened, just like not like a joke, but like a fun novella to work on. I, yeah, sometimes when I hear about these, like like this woman who just got uh, mauled by a jaguar. Mm. Do you read about this? No, but that's horrible. Well, no, it's kind of, it's one of these stories where like the woman's at the zoo. And oh, she, I did hear about that. She climbs that. over the barrier. For like a photo or something? To take a selfie. And I think the jaguar reached through the bars and like swiped her oh, with wow. its claw. I'm not 100% sure. I want to say it was through bars. But still, like sometimes when I hear about animal attacks in nature and then... Uh, I'm also like reading about like climate change and just like human foolishness. Tons of that. Yeah. There's a part of me that's like nature's pissed. Right. I think that you said something about, we're not going to kill the Jaguar, which I think was really cool. I think I saw something like that. Yeah. No, the zoo said, no, the woman jumped the barrier. It's not the Jaguar's fault. The Jaguar is a wild animal. Exactly. But like, what is, what is it with people? I don't know, man. Like you gotta be, you gotta be a complete moron they want the photo they want the likes yeah well so do i like i don't want to get it's a fucking jaguar you know like i go hiking in the morning and it's uh it's dark when i go and there's a mountain lion that lives in griffith park yeah i think about it every morning mountain lions are scary they're probably the creatures i'm most afraid of in the wild just they will hunt you they will hunt you and you won't you won't know Mm -hmm. until it's like on top of you right 
And I'm always like, I, you know, I don't want to jinx myself, but it's just like, um, it's like, how can this, it's not that big of a park, right? How can this thing be living up there? There's people everywhere, right? How can there not be any problems? Why are they letting it stay? (laughs) Like, don't, I don't want it to get hurt, but it's like, why can't we move this thing to a better habitat? I don't know, man. Is it like just one? It's just one. Just one. Because I think what happened is it crossed the highway 101. Oh, wow. Just to get into the park. Like, it's very unlikely. And it's also because of human encroachment on natural habitat. The mountain lion population has been dramatically reduced. So there's all this inbreeding. Sure. So it's like this like lone bachelor mountain lion mm-hmm. or bachelorette. I can't remember if it's male or female, but, um, it's inbred. It's the, you know, I want to say genetically, it's like, you know, generationally inbred yeah. from this very small batch of lions that lives in the mountains around here. And this one happens to be essentially trapped by freeways Oh wow! inside of Griffith park, which is like a city park. And people like run in that park and everything. Yeah. It's like totally accessible. Yeah. That is wild stuff. I know. So I don't know. It's just, it's weird to have like a, this lion living in this park that I go to. That's <laughs> awesome though. It is. But, but that would affect my morning run. Cause like, they, they especially track runners. Right. Or people on mountain bikes and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. Just do it. Um, so, <laughs> um, so, okay. So depression you mentioned. Yep. Like, uh, you've struggled with this your whole life. Is this something you have to medicate? I mean, obviously with the pot, maybe like you're medicating, but yeah, I would, I would say I've been like a sad, depressed person, but it's been better and better each year. I would say like, I'm definitely better than I was like 10 years ago. Um, and finding like better coping mechanisms. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm also a runner. I really enjoy that a lot. And, um, I've been taking a lot more walks in Seattle, um, the writing routine and the rigor helps too. But yeah, it, I, I it's think just I like, it's, it's like, um, do you know what it is? Like, I mean, I know it's like a, it's always like a, a hodgepodge. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder about this. Like, is it neurochemical predisposition or is it like the events of life? I guess it's some combination of two. It has to be the, some combination. I think I can always track it back to like, unfortunately, like childhood and like, um, like I actually had a pretty rough upbringing. How so? Did we talk about, I don't want to repeat. No, it's okay. Um, I can't remember if he did actually. I kind of had a, I, I, I had an abusive mother. Um, we had like a divorce when I was 14. Um, my parents separated, which wasn't that dramatic, but I think it's really the relationship I had with my mother and her relationship with my other siblings that kind of, um, affected everything here on out. But I also find that experience to be incredibly valuable. I actually really like being a sad person. I actually talked about this a little bit last night. I think it gives you like some kind of heightened sense of, well, hopefully empathy if you're like in the mood for it. Um, also mentioned this last night during the reading that some weird little thing I kind of do with strangers is I like to pretend people might be having like the worst day of their life just in case, just to give them that extra um, TLC because I have been in situations like that where it has grief has been some kind of secret, um, uh, which does sometimes mean that I might be overly polite, but, um, I like, it's kind of something like I do on a day to day basis. There's worse things you can do. I hope so. Yeah. And by the way, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of thought so. Um, <laughs> uh, but no, you know, you bring up a good point and I think it's like, it's not a bad approach to life because, 
people bury stuff and you can be moving through your day, uh, whether it's even, whether it's somebody, you know, or it's just somebody you deal with at the drugstore or pass on the street. Right. You never know what people are carrying around. Right. And you talk about being a sad person and sort of liking it. The thought that popped into my head, mm-hmm. we're, we're all sad people. Exactly. Everybody's sad. Yeah. I think there's, you know, I think there are different approaches to it. Like some people wallow, which I have been guilty of. Me too. You know, some people, um, I think respond with this like manic happiness and like kind of like repression and denial of their sadness or something. Yeah. Some people get angry, you know, people process things differently. I think. And manifest in different ways. Yeah. Um, I, I also think there are people who just are blessed with really good neurochemistry. I think you're right. And are just like well-adjusted and like just dispositionally happy. Those people fascinate me. <laughs> me you too. Know, They're um, often my friends. But yeah. Really? And they have you around to be like, oh, this is my sad <laughs> Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> glad to supply that role. Yeah. Well, but here's, I, you know, do you ever worry about being a toxic presence in people's life because of the sadness? Definitely. I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard for me to like ask for help often. Um, but um, because I worry about that, I think I often think about my actions a lot and making sure I'm not a burden, but you're right. It is like a conscious kind of thing. It's in the front of my mind a lot. Yeah. It's like to be in a position where you need any kind of emotional support or other kind of support. Um, people are always saying like, Hey, you know, just like, especially in suicidal cases, it's always like, I wish they would have just said something. Right. I wish they would have just reached out. But that's very hard. A, it's very hard. And a lot of times, like this is the, I think the dirty truth. A lot of times they did <laughs> right and people were like eh, you're too much work or i'll call you later or you know yeah they kind of half helped yeah you know and it's just like it's it's a lot for people to take on and i think it gets to this issue of everybody being um sad everybody's struggling and so in a culture that i think is as stressed out as ours is or a world that is as stressed as ours is and a species that is as um ill i think as ours mostly is yeah people don't have capacity right i think people are taxed and so it's not that they don't have the in like good intentions or like a kind heart it's just that they can't cope they have a limited supply of energy too that's right. right and so i guess the the roundabout point that i'm making is that to be somebody who has um made efforts to really address their own suffering, whether it's in, um, art or therapy mm-hmm. or both mm-hmm. or something or something else, you know, spiritual pursuits, whatever it is. Yeah. I think those avenues are probably one's best bet. If one hopes to have a higher capacity for empathy and compassion. Yeah. I agree with you. You know, like that's the best outcome of, human suffering, right? <laughs> Compassion is the, the best outcome. Like that's, hopefully. that has to be the best outcome. Yeah. You know, otherwise what? Nothing. It has to be that. Otherwise darkness. Otherwise it's not worth it. Yeah. That's in my experience. Like when you get the empathy back or you see the compassion, it does, um, it does fill you up in like a non cliche way. It just simply does that. Well, and if you want to feel better, um, be kind to other people. That's also very simple, right? Simple, not easy. Yeah. And like, I feel, I always think like, I got to start volunteering. I got to like, but you have a lot going on. Like I I do. I mean, you know, everybody, everybody does. Right. (laughs) Well, and this is the thing too, is that like, 
did you ever feel when you were writing this grief novel, mm -hmm. do you ever struggle with feelings of unworthiness where it's like, Jesus Christ, do we need another victim in the world? <laughs> um, or this has all been said or like, I'm, you know, I'm obviously projecting, but like, <laughs> do you, <laughs> that's amazing. Uh, yeah. But do you, but I mean, do you, did of you course. have, you had that? Yeah. I always were. I think every, uh, narrative I try to put on there, you, you kind of worry about if it belongs, but I think, um, I think I felt a groove with this one. Um, I, I don't think I worried the fact that it was like a grief novel. I think my main concern was like how to make the character get through this and, that was like a really quote unquote fun thing to do. Um, but no, it was, I actually didn't worry too much about if it was going to like mess up the reader or anything. I, that was actually one of my main concerns to make sure it was um, very engaging for the reader. Um, kind of like a, I think that's why some of the best pop songs we like are also really, really sad pop songs, but they're just so good. No, it's so weird. Uh, I just tweeted last night. Cause I like, I've been in this mode. I mean, it's not for that long, but I've just noticed like this pattern. Like I'll, I, at night I'll walk the dog and I'll listen yeah. to music and I'll be like tweeting about whatever song, like random song I have and be listening to. Uh, what did listen. you tweet? I was tweeting about this Robin song. I love Robin. I know. She's that's amazing. And I just, I like just put it all together. I was like, well, that's a weird synergy. <laughs> I was listening to that song dancing on my own. It's such a beautiful song. And it's like, it's got this great dual effect where it's like, wow, this is a really sad person. Right. And yet this is like the best dance song like that song is a banger you put that song on any wedding <laughs> yeah. everyone's out in the middle of the dance floor know, it's about this person and, and like not only is it like a, a sad person but it's like a person who's kind of like petty and like stalking <laughs> it's just it's just beautiful like i love but it's this like the most beautiful kind of petty right yeah uh, because in the song she's like i don't know i love that song because yeah it's because she's a little weird and stalker-esque but um uh, but it's all it's that yearning of, or that desire it's all about desire um, but yeah, a banger of a song. I love that song. Yeah. So, um, I guess like maybe it's that kind of combination when you're working, and like, it's a grief song, right? Totally. Grief She's grieving the loss of a relationship, right. And yeah. like feeling jilted. And so, um, whether it's that kind of grief or it's grief uh, that's tied to mortality, maybe one of the solutions to the artistic conundrum, if you're trying to kind of like alchemize it and make it something that's both true, but also not like a complete bludgeoning right? is to try to like hybridize it in that way and like find that weirdness. <laughs> I think find it weird, but also keeping it simple in a way that it's understandable for everyone. Right. Like, because it's, um, that's why I like, I studied a lot of pop songs writing the book actually, just because what are like the bare, what are the things like we resonate with the most and like in these like great songs and I think once you find the kind of bare bones of that, it, it's really helpful driving the narrative forward. So what songs did you study? Actually, a ton of Robin, um, like a ton of Robin. Why, why her? Like just because she embodies these things? Yeah, the things we, exact things that we talked about, it's uh, this like kind of weird, usually narrator with like great desire, but also great strength in the rejection almost. I often think like um, uh, dealing with or being okay with rejection is incredibly like sexy. And I think Robin does that really well. That's like all about, uh, that's part of what the song is about. Um, well, no, that's the truth. And like, you know, there is strength. There's like a weird strength in you get rejected and you're like, okay, I'm going to go to the fucking club and like hide <laughs> out in the corner. And But it's also not me. And she's like, but I still love you anyways. It's like, I also like that spin to it. Like there's not um, this anguish, but it's more like this like self-deprecating kind of, yeah. 
you want to dance it away. Well, and you can't, it's like, you can't hate the song. No. So can't. this is something I've, I've been having conversations about, like not on the show necessarily, but uh -huh. with friends of mine where it's like in any kind of messaging, whether it's like writing fiction, writing nonfiction, tweeting, writing a song, it's like people who are successful and who come out, you know, come across, it's like they found a way to express themselves in such a manner that is extremely hard to hate. Mm -hmm. Nothing to hate about it. Yeah. Like, and it's kind of, I don't know. Like, I, I guess like that might be like a really simplistic way of thinking about it, but it resonated with me. Like there's, there's nothing you can grab onto and be like, fuck you. It's like, this is, uh, constructed in such a way that it works on you emotionally, but it doesn't offend somehow. Like, uh, do you understand what I was getting at? It's the sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. It's like some weird sweet spot. And some people I think have a better instinct for that than others yeah i think if the goal of whatever the thing is is to uplift and support i think that generally helps it too i think a good robin song does kind of uplift you that's why i listen to it usually i'm listening to robin because i'm feeling kind of sad yeah like but, like that song the song that we're talking about like definitely doesn't leave you feeling sad no especially while you're brushing your teeth it's perfect <laughs> <laughs> uh, so do you think about that as a writer and especially with this book as it you know it's uh concerned with grief did you think like well, how do I want to leave people? And like, what kind of art do I want to put out into the world? Like, what kind of vibe do I want to create? Right. I really like playing with like, um, like the tension of like what the author knows versus like what the characters know versus what eventually what the reader knows. I think when you play with that tension, it could be really fun, especially like in a grief novel, because the reader knows this is a grief novel. And but the character is kind of living it. And you yourself, hopefully, as, a, as the author, knows the trajectory. Um, and then I think revealing it and building that suspense, or sometimes the emotional suspense, um, could be a lot of fun. Um, again, I wasn't trying to make it entertaining in a way, but I was trying to make it enough where it was compelling enough for many things to be true as on top of grief. Like, it's also a novel about friendship, um, a novel about animals... It's really not all about getting through it, but, but I also didn't know any of these things until they were, it was all done. What do you, what do you think about getting through grief? Is it just time? I mean, you need, and you need friends or people around you that are supporting you. And I think friends are incredibly helpful. Um, definitely time. Uh, there's a character in the novel named Amber that I had no, I had no plans for her, but she became a very vital character in the book. Um, to kind of support like Corvus while she was kind of going through this really strange trip. But yeah, in moments when I've had like really weird depression, I found some of my best friends have been not really folks that I've chosen, but people that have just stuck around and took care of me. What do you mean? Just shown up out of nowhere? And they tend to be like work friends or people in your proximity, you know? Um, not like I didn't chose them, like they're not good people. But I didn't like engage with them to be like, oh, I want you to be my best friend. It's usually like they see me go through some kind of weird turmoil or um, they see me on a day-to-day -day basis. And then we develop those relationships over time. And I noticed they have been, um, yeah, I think some of my best friends are just folks that have been in proximity of me and we've gone to know each other and suddenly we become very tight. And it's because they've known that I have like a weird sadness day-to-day -day and they get to know the real me that way. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, 
do you do you feel like you are willing to express that sadness or like let let on or maybe it's just something that's just there and there's no hiding it and 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 because of that people who might be more inclined to like put on a happy face or something <laughs> might gravitate to you because you are manifesting or expressing something about how they feel but might not be as willing to show or something I think it's very interesting that a lot of introverts tend to be friends with extroverts. Um, I think there's something to that. Uh, I can't really, I know a lot of my friends tend to be like really sensitive extroverts. Um, I like to think of myself as like an introverted person that could like party on occasion, but, uh, <laughs> um, and I kind of like that balance. I don't know. That's a really good question. Uh, I'm not sure why the folks or the people that I call like the ride or die in my life, like why we gravitated towards each other, but. I think it usually comes out from a place of like true care and sincerity. Like, like I want you to be okay and I want you to be okay. And it's also about supporting each other's projects. Um, I think it's very interesting that a lot of like people I really care about are also like writers or artists. They tend to be sad, but they also have these projects going on. And I think we're all working to get through something. Like you said, we're all pretty sad people or everyone's sad, but it's nice to have like this little, uh, project that we're all kind of harnessing and chiseling down. And then once we kind of figure that out, it does make things a little better, especially when we all celebrate it together. Just, yeah, I think there's something, I mean, I, it, it I don't want to oversimplify, but there is something mm -hmm. to like saying it, finding a form and being able to articulate it, whether it's in a fiction or not, you know, nonfiction form. Also being candid with it, I think is being helpful. Like I'm actually like not embarrassed at all to say, yeah, I'm generally a sad person, but I'm not, but that's who I am. And I like who I am. Do you do any therapy or anything like that? Um, no, but I need to. I've been actually looking for one once I get back off this book tour, I think. And then but like and medication or anything? You're not medicating it? No, I mean, I do smoke weed. I don't smoke. I wouldn't say I smoke weed for depression. I think I just kind of, I think I heard you on a recent podcast that it's like California sober or something. Like I am from <laughs> Somebody Cali said that. I don't yeah. know if I can claim that. <laughs> who said that? Maybe it's uh, Brad Phillips. Brad I think? Phillips. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but I kind of feel the same way that, um, what Brad said during that podcast was, um, I'm like really, um, I feel like I have 10 brains that going on at the same time sometimes. And, um, sometimes smoking a little weed helps like mellows me out, but I wouldn't say I take it for depression. I think, um, the things I do to depression for depression are just like self-care things like probably similar things that you do. Like I wake up early to go on a run. Um, I don't quite meditate, but I do. But, the, but I just want to stop you. Yeah. The run really is an antidepressant. Oh, incredibly so. Like if, like it, the like routine not, of it, the routine of it, but also the neurochemical response that it generates. Like mm -hmm. those endorphins are real. And I love them. Yeah. I definitely get the runner's high and I like the, the preparation for the run. I don't even think I even enjoy running if I like really think about it, but I love getting through one. Just like putting on your spandex and listening to Robin and right. just running around Seattle. Yeah, a good playlist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With a certain look on my face. Yeah, it's that's the, my jam. It's the eye of the tiger. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you get up, you run. Mm -hmm. You said you don't meditate, but you do. Not quite meditate. I like, would never call it like official or formal meditation, but I do take time to kind of um, think about my day and also disconnect and slow down you drink alcohol you know not not really like i do go out with friends on occasion but it's not something i like look forward to often actually so pot's your thing definitely 
See, okay, so I used to be, for a good period, I was like, you know, I was the guy who like had a couple of glasses of wine at night. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I'd be like, how's you, that going? Actually, are you still? No, because remember, I like there was took a, a break. It was right around. I want to say I was like, I, I think I can remember when I talked about it in the monologue on the show. It was like a Chelsea Martin show. I love like, Chelsea. Yeah, she's a buddy of yours. Yeah, she's a sweet friend. Yeah, so this was like right around, and it's always around the holidays, like the new year. I'm starting to like re- revamp my existence yet again. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I was just, I just started I to, that. I just started to observe it. I was like, why the fuck am I doing this? Because it was never in, to excess, right? So I don't think it was a problem in that way. But it just was like, I just questioned it. I was like, am I really getting anything out of this? And then like, why wine? And like, what is wine? For, especially for people in middle age, like what does that symbolize? This like bougie <laughs> bullshit where everyone's like, oh, you know, I love the Rhone region. Or it's like, shut up. Wine culture is very interesting. Like, yeah. it's very interesting. You can see like wine o'clock on like a t shirt and things like that. Well, and it's also like as a parent, mm-hmm. you go to these kid birthday parties or, uh-huh. you, or you go to any of these gatherings, it's always like a hybrid event of adults and children. Right. There's a lot of drinking. And it's always like, oh, the moms are all having white wine. And it's like, I'm just like, not and not just the moms, but right, like sure. it's just like it's a it's a consistent element, and I wonder at it. And I, it's like when people, I, you know, I overthink these things, and I, I probably get too judgy. People are just having a glass of wine; they're enjoying themselves. I'm the dick who's like sitting off to the side, like <laughs> running like a social critique. But I think about these things too with like cars. You know, like what are these things? People are trying to communicate something about themselves is what I'm saying. Yeah. And it's like, oh, somebody's driving a Tesla. It's actually great. They're lovely cars. They're way better for the environment. But I'm the dick who's like, oh, so you're rich and enlightened. No, you know, I've never seen a Tesla I like, so I'm right there with you. Uh, like, I, just, I just wonder about like, why we make these consumer choices. Mm-hmm. It's not just simply like, cause I, and I say that as, my, as an outgrowth of my own sure. years-long wine habit. Right. Where I was like, why, why did I gravitate to this? Well, I live in California, so there's proximity. It's part of the culture. I'll embrace that. I genuinely like that it pairs with food so that like, it wouldn't just be like this medication thing where you're like right. pounding whiskey, you know, right. you would be eating it with or drinking it with dinner. Um, but then I just like started to think about alcohol, mm. started to think, and I just like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do this as much. I, I said I was going to be done. And then now it's like every once in a while I have a glass of wine, maybe like one or two days a week I might have a glass of wine, but it's way less than it used to be. Right. And I think if I'm going to do anything, um, like substance related, I think like, like eating like a little weed candy or something, especially if I'm not being social. (laughs) Right. You can like dip out a little bit. You dip out a little bit and I find it like creatively stimulating. Right. So like, is that how you do it? Like you smoke pot when you're like, do you do it when you are working creatively or is it something you do when you're like unwinding and you just want to like goof off a little bit internally? You know, I would say with writing this book, um, yeah, I did. It was like kind of part of my routine. I don't think it was tied to the writing because I definitely had a lot of sober writing with the book too. I don't know. I, I, um, embarrassingly so, or maybe not embarrassingly so, I have a really high tolerance with weed so I can kind of it's uh has less of an effect on me to me it's like really of a an everyday kind of mellow kind of thing um creative stimulant hmm i think the running actually helps more creatively than the weed does but for me it's all about just the sitting down aspect of writing is like the most important part about it um and like the slowing down 
So that's what it does for you. It helps you just like sit and not want to move. <laughs> right. It does help me focus for sure. And kind of like, um, and you get in the mood, I think is the appropriate way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. I mean, like, I think like I have to be basically caffeine is my, yeah. Like caffeinated. And is it coffee? What uh, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I, a little bit of tea and coffee. I drink a lot of caffeine. Me too. It's, um, I've been out, like someone sent me like a, I think like a cracked podcast the other day about just how the amount of sleep we're getting, like just diminishes like per year or not per year, but we generally all as a society used to sleep a lot more and we're not really anymore. Do you think, okay. Cause like, this is how I feel like I've been thinking a lot about this. Cause I generally go to sleep between 10 and 11 yeah. and I get up at about four thirty or five. So I'm not getting a ton of sleep. No, you're not getting a ton of sleep. Um, but I feel most days like Friday end of the week tends to be when I feel it the most just because of the accumulation. Yeah. Or the whole week. Right. And then Saturday and Sunday, it's a little looser and I kind of try to read like Sunday. I've tried to like do nothing. Sure. I like to have my day of rest. I think that's very necessary and very, um, very healthy. I think, yeah, you got to have at least one day and I, I try to like be unscheduled. It gets a little bit hard because you have kids stuff happening. Of course. But, uh, but if you have that in mind, I think the having it in mind is the, what helps you. I, yeah, I think so. I think having like a ritual where you do give yourself some time to rest, but also like if you're not, uh, if you're taking good care of your health right, and you're exercising, um, and you're drinking a shit ton of caffeine, like, <laughs> I, I don't feel miserable. Good. So maybe I can like run. Like, I guess my question is like, there's all this talk of like, well, you have to get like eight or nine hours. That's what human beings need. And I'm like. I think honestly, like six is good. I, unfortunately I want eight or nine. So, I can operate on like four, unfortunately. And I do on occasion or quite often, but my whole thing is like, you can, I'll take what I can get. I think. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I guess I'm just like, I don't want to do damage to myself, but I'm like, this is really the only, like, I'm not going to go to bed at eight o'clock at night. Right. You know, I just, and I can't, right. I'm just, I'm doing the best I can, but I'm just like. I guess I could sleep if I, if I slept more, I wouldn't have time to exercise. Cause I have to exercise. The only time I have to exercise is early. I need the time to fitness. I think also like as a creative person, I found to be really necessary. Um, even just like small walks, um, just to kind of get out of my head. Um, and I'm glad you, you, um, you also do a similar routine. It sounds like, yeah. I mean, I think there are a lot of writers who do, there are, uh, many writers who don't many people who don't. And sure. I'm honestly mystified by people who can like function at a high level <laughs> right. without it. I'm like, wow, what is like, what kind of, what kind of genes do you have? Like, that's incredible to me. Yeah. Maybe they're working out at other ways. I, that actually reminds me, I, I once had a talk with like my very good friend, Willie about, because I just finished this novel and it got, it took like a lot out of me and I, but it was all, it all also felt really good to complete it. Um, but I was talking about if, if I had the choice of like writing 10 books and then maybe somehow killing myself because of the amount of work that took versus like writing four books and living somewhat of a happy life, I, I would hope I ch would choose the latter. And I just been thinking of that, uh, about that very particular thing a lot more actually lately is like, because I feel what you just, I echo everything you just said about productivity and the need for, to kind of keep on pace with that. And I'm always going to be ambitious and kind of like 
wanting to do more, uh, but I also see the need now, especially this past year of that self-care and that, like, I think I need that more heightened sense, also empathy towards yourself. Um, and I like figuring out how that's going to play out with my life as a writer. I think finding that balance is crucial. Yeah. I mean, and I think if you want to be compassionate and kind to other people on a consistent basis and in a mean, in, in meaningful ways, it has to start with yourself. Yeah. Or you're lying to everyone else. Yeah. Or you're just going to run, you're going to burn out. Totally. You know, like, I think that's part of my routine is like, I, it's the, uh, the old comparison where it's like, you know, on an airplane, give yourself oxygen first. Like, that's how I feel. Like get up really early, oxygenate your, yourself <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. you can tend to your children. But, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how else to do it. And, um, I just, I think too, like from a mood perspective, I don't know if it's because of my neurochemistry or if because it's so ingrained in me that if you don't take good care of yourself, you're just going to feel crappy and you're going to expose yourself to sickness and decay. Totally. And so it's hard for me to like reconcile, you know, I just, a day is always better when I start with some motion. I feel the exact same way. Yeah. I need to kind of get going to kind of get going. Um, but yeah, you get a lot of great sun out here. Um, a lot of great sun out here in in Southern California. I, yeah, I miss it. Um, I'm up in Seattle, so I think I think having that sun is like kind of crucial. Well, that's I think, but yeah, because it's like it creates a certain pressure too. It's like it's so beautiful. Like you have to go outside. Like what am I doing inside? <laughs> There's like mountains, and it's always sunny. It's, it's warm out. I mean, it's true, yeah. you know. But I I, I kind of like that because it enforces the discipline a little bit. But, right. You're right. Um, so you mentioned earlier as you were talking about your book, uh, Corvus and a Trip. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm blanking on the name of the character that helped her through Amber, Amber. Yeah. So, um, psychedelics, is this something, um, that you have experience with? Um, you know, not a ton of experience. I mean, I've done like shrooms. I've shroomed before, but, um, it's not like one of my go-tos or anything. Okay. Yeah. But it did, I mean, it did it like an experience factor into the book or did you have any kind of like creative breakthroughs as a result of some psychedelic experience? No, with usually when I'm, I've have done most of my mushrooms experience, I've just been pretty calming and just pretty mellow. Usually it's just me just like walking through the park and feeling um, good with the world. Um, and I think that's the novel kind of works through other troubles. Um, but yeah, no, I don't really have much of a psychedelic experience with any substances. No hippopotami. Like, no, I kind of wish that. That'd be great. <laughs> Chasing you through the, uh, I don't know. Where do they live? Africa, I guess. They live in Africa, but my, the hippos that are in my book are from Colombia because of the whole Pablo Escobar thing. Oh, right. Right. What do you, yeah, he's like, explain for people. Well, essentially, long story short, Pablo Escobar, during the height of his uh, empire, brought over hippos. I forget for the exact reason. I think at one point, essentially having them as like guard dogs or something. I'm not maybe that <laughs> reason, but you know. Then his empire fell, and now Colombia has a huge, like, hippo problem because they're terribly not native to that region. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I also thought that was really fascinating that there are hippos in Colombia. I'm fascinated by people who have exotic pets. Yeah. Like, and I'm also, like, disturbed by it. Like, why do you have a tiger? What the f- <laughs> did you hear? Did you hear this story about this house in Houston? I did. There was, like, a tiger in a house? Yeah, there's just, like, an abandoned house, essentially. And somebody, for some reason, went in and was like, holy shit. There's, there's a, a tiger in there. There's a tiger. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, like, Mike Tyson had a tiger. And I'm just like, 
like this poor tiger. I know. Like who's, you know, I guess they steal it. They, they somehow get a hold of a tiger cub and then sell it on the black market. Somehow. Yeah. It's frightening. Um, Twiggy's really cute. I yeah. like Twiggy. She's, uh, she's a good girl. I've been, you know, I've been pleased. It's like, it's been a year now and, uh, I feel like we've developed a good like rhythm to life. Yeah. It's taken work though. It was really sweet to walk um, up your steps and just seeing both of y'all there. She was just super cute. Yeah. I try to like, I've been lately, I've been trying to like greet my guests on the porch. It's a kind of iconic image. I'm like, <laughs> there he is. <laughs> it's extremely, it's, twiggy. I- it's extremely iconic. <laughs> twiggy is iconic. I'm just like this guy in sweatpants with too many questions. Um, so are you, where you said you're working on a novella now? I'm kind of working on like, like three random projects. Now working on a novella, working on another novel called Cave Me In. That one's about, it's a revenge novel about two women, Chloe Battles and Sarah Cush. And then possibly working on another book of short stories. And they're like female protagonists. Mm-hmm, two of them. So that's kind of, I mean, that's a kind of a consistent thread. Do you have like thoughts about that choice? You know, I think, um, people have been, uh, since I've been on tour, people have been asking me this a lot lately. And I think, the simple answer I like to tell is I wanted to write, you know, a book I wanted to read, but I think, um, I'm a big fan of, do you know Hayao Miyazaki's work? No. He did like Spirited Away, um, Princess Mononoke. It's a bunch of really dope anime films. His films tend to also have like a bunch of really tight, dope female protagonists, usually younger ones going through like a strange, surreal journey. And I think they're, those narratives offer like a very, they're often, like I said, very surreal, um, but it, they offer a particular kind of comfort and intimacy because um, of everything they're going through. Um, but yeah, it's just what I, I've done male characters before and same with non-binary folks. But I think so far with my novels, I've had, usually for me, it starts to figure out what's most important is like figuring out who the characters of the novel are and just kind of going from there. And in these particular two ones two forms um they've both been female protagonists and it seems like you're drawing inspiration from um like music and cinema most definitely yeah. and like using those in like an explicit i mean i guess an explicit way it's not like i mean i guess you sort of stumble into it like you you start watching spring breakers and you know the light goes on but you're actively when you're looking for material or trying to come up with ideas for for books you're actively turning to what music and movies mostly well that's a really good question uh, thanks, Brad. I think it's more like I like trans. What I like to do is like I like translating things I do like to see in film and prose. I think there's a lot that the image offers that I like to kind of break down and see how it might be like affecting the reader. Um, but yeah, for me, it's a great jumping off point is figuring out how to like translate the image into something effective in prose. Well, and I think it's interesting too that a movie like Spring Breakers, which you know, is very stylized and uh, oh but that's exactly why it's it works like a music video right like and i'm very much like a sentence by sentence writer like i'm not i wasn't good at plot and once i saw this film to me it almost seemed like a style transcending form into content in a way and it just needed i just needed to see that movie to see like it could do that Um, because to me it didn't make much logical sense but it made a lot of emotional sense and once i had that going um it gave me kind of like um license to do uh king of joy well and it's also like i mean correct me if i'm wrong but it's it's not a movie that like one watches and is immediately like well this is literary 
Um, and I think, I think there are elements of cinema, um, you, you I mean, cinema and, and literature are obviously different in ways that I don't need to point out. Sure. Um, but I feel like maybe if you're dealing with a really I'm trying to think of it, like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie, like you're watching like there will be blood. Right. That to me feels more like a cul-de-sac. Right. Than a movie like Spring Breakers where there's room to move. Sure. You know, on the page and like ways to react to it and sure. to address the things that it's evoking in you in literature. Um, I, I guess what I'm saying is that makes more sense. Yeah. And it's also asking how you evoke those things. Um, you had Chelsea Hodson on this podcast and she like emphasized like atmosphere and tone. I think that's also what I'm like trying to look for when I'm watching those kind of movies is like, how do they accomplish that very particular kind of atmosphere and tone and how I could, would be able to translate that on the page in, in essence. Yeah. Well, Swing Breakers is a weird movie. Totally. Yeah. Made me like it, it, it worked on me in a strange way. Yeah. Like it's sort of a headache, but you can't turn away from it. I know it's very, it's like neon in that way. And also like Florida. Have you ever, <laughs> I've never been. But. I spent some like high school spring breaks in like Florida. And it's just like that, that whole state, that whole world, you know, it's just like, Oh, but they get it. And like the cotton, like the college, like MTV spring breaks of yore. Yeah. Um, that whole like beach culture and it's filthy. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking about it now. <laughs> so what movies have you, have you seen anything lately that you, like, you really enjoyed or like have really reacted to strongly? You know, I've been really out of it uh, recently. Of, um, I need to start rewatching a bunch of stuff. Um, I actually rewatched this movie. I brought in a shirt, Akira. It's like an old anime film, um, just for some research. Um, I like David Cronenberg's work. I've been like kind of rewatching some of his movies recently. What was the one he did? Did he do History of Violence? He did do a History of Violence. That was one of my. Fa- it's one of my favorite movies. Really, that's one of my favorite movies. Okay, good. I really love that film. Yeah. I, like, I, I haven't seen nearly as many movies as I used and to. It's only like 100 minutes long. It's like really, con- I don't know, I love that. And William Hurt's in it for just nine minutes or something, but it's like perfect. Yeah. It's a, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I, to, here's like, like a weird confession is that like I would have to rewatch it to like, like reorganize in my head sure. exactly what happens in it. But I just, there have been a, a small hand, uh, handful of films that I've seen in the 21st century that stand out and there will, there will be blood as one of them. A history of violence is one of them. You know, I'd have to like, you know, search my brain for the others, but that one jumps out. I think, I think maybe one of the reasons it might jump out. Cause I thought about that too, with that particular movie is like Cronenberg is like, he's known to be like this horror director. And then that's like a film where he, it's not quite horror. It's doing way more. Um, it's like based on a graphic novel, but because there's like these horror elements there, it just works in like, these we talked about hybrids earlier right like the what makes a good pop song and i think there's something going on in his films that he especially that film and like eastern promises yeah i like that one too yeah it's like they're not horror movies but he's kind of putting horror themes in like a russian mob film um with that wonderful uh, naked knife fight scene right yeah and and uh what's the movie get out Right. It's like social horror. Exactly. That's another film that I think would, would be on my list where right. it's like, wow, that was just something different. And it's, maybe this is the solution. Maybe we've cracked the code. Like, <laughs> yeah. You've got to find a way to like layer your art and hybridize it to make it new and interesting. We well, got to make it yours, right? Because it's like, well, how would David Cronenberg do a mob film? Or like, you know, how would you do, you know, I think it's about taking 
because I want to do try on more genres. And I think there is, if you take on those genres, there will be something that is inexplicably your imprint on those things that I think welcomes, to me, welcomes experimentation and hopefully like figuring out what that might look like. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that like, you know, sometimes people can feel constricted by genre, um, sure. Or, you know, formula and feeling like they have to hit certain marks, but I think that can actually yield interesting work sometimes, depending on how you like limitations can sometimes be freeing, you know, in a way yeah. or they can like, they can force you to, um, have to make interesting choices. Right. Definitely. Yeah. I, I concur with that. So what genre, I mean, is there a specific genre that's on your mind or that you're working on? I'm trying to work on a revenge novel now. Oh, right. So it's like trying to figure out, like I'm watching a bunch of really, like, really cool, like revenge films, just trying to see what, how they accomplish what they do. And, um, yeah, but I think I mentioned it before, but it's also about making it fun for me and figuring out the narrative that way. Yeah. So what are some revenge movies? I'm thinking like Kill Bill. It's like popping into my head. Kill Bill. Um, what's that? Old Boy. Have you ever seen Old oh, Boy? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The movie's fucked up, but they, that was remade too, wasn't it? It was. Re I didn't. I, I didn't watch the remake. I think Spike Lee remade it. Right. Um, which it's whatever. But I I like the the original. I rewatched recently. Um, I don't know. I actually need more recommendations for some. I've been just kind of on the scope lookout. It's a, like, the thing I like about revenge plots is that they're simple. Yeah. Like, you know, it's like a, the vessel is there, you know, the basic architecture. Right. But and, then you can complicate it and then you can complicate it. Right. Which I like once you figure out the very, the core, um, yeah. Once you know what the simplicity is, you can kind of complicate it. I love that. What about the end though? Like, it seems like, I mean, it's sort of brutal. It's like, I guess, I guess if the, but you have to make a decision, right? Does it actually work or doesn't? Yeah. I feel like my, my revenge novel might be like kind of a pussy revenge novel. <laughs> the end, the guy's like, what am I doing? I need to yeah, it's going to be that moment where, <laughs> am I going to kill him or not? I just need to forgive. <laughs> just got to liberate myself. But that'd be it. That sounds like a great book. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone would be throwing it across the room. Just murder this person. Um, and so what about death? I mean, since the, we started with grief and your book deals with grief, like, do you have uh, a sense of like any kind of notion of how things go um, mm -hmm. in the afterlife or if there is one, like, do you have feelings about that? You know, um, I don't believe in God or anything. I do have a lot of respect for those folks that have relationships with God. I personally don't. Um, how were you raised? Did you have any of it as a kid? Um, I, I was raised kind of strange. It was like a mix of like uh, Christianity, but also we, um, it was also kind of a Buddhist upbringing. Um, but again, you know, my mom was very, it was very complicated growing up. So no, I think currently, I think I do believe in reincarnation. Um, I think, I think there is something after, um, but I, it's more like a belief in good. It's more like I try to put my more belief on people as much as I can. But as far as like life after death, I guess I haven't thought about it too much or not enough for it to worry me. I mean, like, right. It's going to happen Just yeah. once it does, it's out of your hands anyway. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm more affected about like, uh, things I do in the present tense. Um, 
I think I am scared of death and like I have to be, but I think anybody who says they have no fear of death is full of shit. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I think, and it's also kind of disrespectful to the people that love you. Right. If you're not scared of fear of death in any kind of way, <laughs> you're like, yeah. I bring it on. <laughs> I'm like, I love you, man. What are you talking about? We're at a child's birthday party. <laughs> you tone it down, please. Um, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, I think like the, like where I'm at with it is I'm not necessarily afraid of being dead. But the dying process, it seems natural to be a bit concerned. Yeah, the dying, dying, dying sounds like it sucks, but... It can. I mean, or there's people who have, like, you know, relatively peaceful exits. Sure. And, uh... Have you ever had a near-death experience? You know, I asked myself this in the writing of my book. And there was one time I was on an airplane flying from Florida uh-huh. uh, after a spring break. And we were connecting in Charlotte. Uh-huh. on our way home to the midwest uh-huh. and the plane went like it was kind of windy so it was like wobbly on the way down yeah and like it was one of those things where like we touched down on the runway uh-huh. and we're like coming to a halt and then all of a sudden like powered back up and took off again oh my god because there was another plane on the runway. oh my god so i guess that would count i think that totally counts yeah and but at the time i was just like okay i mean it was definitely like alarming what, was everyone else alarmed i'm sure yeah yeah i mean you know everyone's always, i think there's always a weird tension on airplanes period that goes unspoken. Do you remember feeling any way afterwards? Like, did you do anything special? I mean, I was like, I was like 16. Okay. You know, and I think, uh, oh my God. Now I'm remembering that I brought, like, this was old school. This was like, you know, pre-cell phone, but I had like a dictaphone. Yeah. This is like so telling. This is something I haven't thought about in years and years and years. But yeah, for some reason on that spring break, I brought a dictaphone and was like walking around like, and you Sort nice. of like, it was like early iterations of the podcast. That's amazing, man. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of weird, but I, uh, but that's why I asked it. Usually like when something like that happens, it's like, what do you do after the fact? Right? Well, the reason that it sparked this memory is that I remember walking up the little jetway, like, you know, the little tunnel that connects to the airplane. Most definitely. Yeah. We were my buddy. I was with a buddy. Uh, we were on the same flight and he and I were walking up the jetway afterwards. And the reason I remember the dictaphone is that uh, I interviewed him basically as we walked up the jetway about his feelings about that takeoff. And he said to me, like, as a joke, he's like, I'm just happy to be alive. Oh my God. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Do you still have that somewhere? I don't think so. Oh my God. That's you know? perfect. Yeah. So that would be mine. I mean, do you have one? I survived like a really, um, pretty major car accident, like almost 10 years ago. Um, I was in the passenger seat. My friend Jen was driving. My buddy Jesus is in the back. We were going from San Diego to LA on the five. Somewhere around Orange County, there was a car that like swerved into our lane, bumped us on the right. That caused, um, that basically caused us to swerve out of control. And we were, um, I think we hit a 16 wheeler on our right hand side and then got caught underneath. And was dragged underneath while the 16 wheeler was um, breaking. Um, I was the only one injured, but it was like um, the side of the car was like collapsed on my side. I ended up having like nine staples on my on my head. Um, but yeah, I, were you unconscious? No, I like uh, we got to the hospital right away. Um, the ambulance came real quick. Uh, I remember th- thinking I was going to die. Like my buddy Jesus was holding me, and I was actually pretty at peace. But probably because I was in shock. Most definitely because I was in shock. Um, but yeah, I actually wrote about it. Um, I, th- I want to say we might have talked about this. I think we might have. But 
it was a incredibly valuable um experience only because in some weird i kind of think of myself like as an absurd person in a weird way too just like i kind of think like i get a, like every day i have now is some kind of bonus so um i do think of it as special which i think you kind of have to just to kind of get through the mundane um weird things of the day but well and every day i mean you know like this is the thing about life you never know when it's going to end you don't know when there's going to be an accident or some weird illness or, you know, right. So every day is kind of a bonus. And right. But I actually started writing much seriously after that car accident because, um, I didn't want to like waffle anymore and it felt like it was time. It was cool though. But yeah, I think they, it helps kind of recalibrate you and kind of like get you in line. Does and the feeling lasts? Cause like what I think I hear sometimes, or I guess maybe what I'm concerned about is that you have one of these threshold experiences and you come out of it on a kind of high where sure. your priorities are suddenly clear to you. Yeah. And, and you're you going have, up in like a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. You have energy. Mm. You're like, okay, like I have a sense of purpose. I, I like maybe a certain fearlessness sure. or a diminishment of fear. Sure. Appreciation for life and everything. But yeah, all those things. But then it's like, do you then like, you know, a year later, six months later, find yourself like reverting back to old form where you've lost that, that shine. Of course you do. But um, I actually celebrate the anniversary every year. So it's kind of like, you always kind of revert back. There's always a return back to something. Um, but it's also kind of up to me to kind of figure out how to get lifted again. How do you celebrate? Um, usually I have certain friends that just kind of know that the date's coming up. What's the date? It's the, it's the week before Halloween. So, so usually I don't even like pinpoint usually around, yeah, the date before Halloween. I actually celebrate, um, the party I went to, like the, when I got home, anyways, that's a longer story, but usually like, I just go out with friends and just have drinks and I'm not much of a drinker, but that day I do drink. <laughs> you don't drive though. No, I don't drive. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely don't drive. I'm not it's a driver a, at it's all. It's a actually. great way to mark the moment. You're not a driver. No. How do you get around? I mean, I got here in a lift. Um, I live in Seattle. It's pretty, um, public transport friendly. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I just sold my car. Congratulations. Yeah. Well, it was like an older car and I was like, I, it needed some repairs and I was like, this is like worth more than what the car is worth. So I just got rid of it. That sounds great. We're going to go with one car. I ride my bike a lot. This is a great biking city. It sh it should be better. If there the were like, cracking. I'm it, sorry. It's, it's all right. It's like I'm going through puberty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I, I guess like I've been thinking a lot lately. I've been reading too much about climate change and it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. It's very scary. And I'm like, you know what? I, have kids who are going to one day be bearing the brunt of this. Yeah. And if they look back and they're like, wow, my parents didn't do shit to like, try to like, you, you know, stop this or like change their behaviors and acknowledge at least the reality of this. That's not going to look, that's not going to age well. Right. So I think part of me is like, I want to see how long I can go. It, you know, it might be the case that work stuff and life circumstances dictate that I have to have my own vehicle. But like, if I think about, for example, like leasing or buying a car mm -hmm. and making a monthly payment, like at the point that I'm at now, I think I could just take a lift if I really need to get somewhere. If you really need to get somewhere. Right? And at my current, like, or like, you know, jump on a bus or take the train or something, but at the, or ride my bike. Right. I think between those options, I would probably have to go quite a ways or circumstances would have to change quite a lot for 
those costs to exceed what I would be paying for a car. Right. The you car fascinates me. It's like, it's always kind of fascinated me because like we're driving around these crazy, they're not crazy because they're not, um, sentient, but not yet. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> wait till yet. the, wait till the 2020, uh, Tesla comes out. <laughs> That's going to be the next like status symbol. Like is your car sentient? <laughs> yeah. Who do we, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, it's funny flying over here from New York to Los Angeles, seeing all those highways that, cause I'm from California, just seeing them all again. It's like, wow. Yeah. I forgot about those highways. It's just amazing that we spend so much time in our cars. I think it does evoke a lot of thinking time in cars. Like thinking, I think thinking in traffic is actually valuable thinking time. Um, but yeah, it gets, I don't like it. It gets wild. I mean, I like some of it. I like some listening to a podcast or some music in a car. Yeah. But driving in this town is a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Especially if you're a scheduled person, it's kind of like a anomaly sometimes, right? Especially if you're a sane person. <laughs> <laughs> like who really, I mean, you know, I just, it's a, the, the situation that we're in, like it's got, there's gotta be a better way. And I think it, it comes down to public transportation Yeah, and like people figuring out, like build a monorail, build some system. Well, car takes up so much space for just like one person. Yeah. It's very inefficient and it's bad for the planet. Yeah. And like the thing too, though, is that like flying, you know, like that's another thing I've been thinking about. Like if we're going to, if we're going to mitigate this even a little bit and it always, it, you know, there's some pretty grave news just coming out from the UN like this past week where it's like, yeah, the ship has sailed. The Arctic's going to raise five to nine degrees by in the next like a hundred years. Yeah. Like it's going to be a catastrophe no matter what we do at this point, because we have fucking failed to act, you know? Yes. And, uh, future generations are going to look back on, I think the baby boomers in particular, just because they were driving the economy, um, for the longest period of when we kind of knew that this shit was happening yeah. and could have acted and right. didn't. Yeah. But you know, I, that's a little simplistic, but I'm just thinking like, there's going to be in the future, uh, some pretty significant rage, you know, when people are living in, I think that's already rage. It's already building, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, there was just the school walkout and the protests, right. you know, and good. Yeah. I, the, the young people are like, hey, we're the ones that are going to have to deal with this stuff. You I assholes. think the kids are going to be all right. Yeah, like when I like feel all the same way you do. And when the little bit of hope I do get out of it is like if you do spend some, like I know you're a wonderful father, but if you spend time with like um, some of those, I spend time with some activist youths and they're so much smarter than I ever will be. Like they're so much in tuned with both their emotions and like what they want out of the world. And they have a lot, I wouldn't say a lot of fight in them. They do, but they also have like something extra that maybe cause I'm getting older now. And I think kids are just fucking dope anyways. But, um, you're totally right. I think it is going to be totally rougher. And I, I, I worry about those times, but, um, I do like what the kids are doing. Well, I think like, that's the thing is that circumstances, especially as they mount and the catastrophe mounts, yeah, it's going to one way or another, it's either going to be annihilation mm -hmm. or there's going to be a shift in consciousness. And like, hopefully we're seeing a shift in consciousness where people are reevaluating how uh, we relate to one another and how we relate to our natural environment and to animals and to all of it, you know, plants, animals, uh, oceans, all of it. And to understand the, uh, the responsibility that we have and the interconnectedness that there very much is. 
Right. And that we don't have dominion over it, that we're no. not separate from it, that right. we're not better than it, you know? Yeah. We're just another animal on this planet, and we happen to be responsible for completely fucking it up. Right. You know? And, like, to accept that responsibility and to make necessary changes would uh, seem like the saner way to go. And what's so insane about the present moment yeah. is that we have, like, a president and a power structure on the right that is really among Western democracies, or like any, pretty much any country. Yeah. Like, it's like the only major political body in the world, you know, with, I don't, you know, maybe there's some like in the Middle East or something that is like denying the reality of this science. Like it's bananas batshit crazy. Yeah. Causing more and more damage in that denial. Yeah. And, but also on top of it, uh, like sort of getting to the point where you're like, oh my God, like they, they kind of want this to happen. And they're already scheming for like how to make money off of it. Yep. And what was, I was just thinking about this this morning <laughs> during, my, during, during my sunrise joy walk, uh, where I was like, I think like, like, cause I think, I think I'm thinking about my kids' futures and like maybe my grandchildren. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, like you have to though. Yeah. But it's, I, I think I, what I was thinking about is that like you have these rich people, like it's already a world of haves and have nots. Right. And then you layer on top of that, like the disasters associated with climate change. And those are going to affect rich people too. Yes. Like Manhattan could be underwater. Yeah. You know, Miami gone, you know, like people are going to get displaced. Like these, these things are going to inconvenience everybody right. but to different degrees because people with resources can relocate. Exactly right. So then I start thinking about the planet heating up. To, it's already unbearable in the summer in most places. Yeah. Um, but you know, even in places that are more, more or less temperate, um, or more temperate, it can get, you know, you can have your 105 to 110 degree day. So I'm starting to think like, Oh my God, you're going to wind up having like a class system that is rooted in people who spend winters in the opposite or winters, wherever they are, the colder months, wherever they are. And then they change poles. Yeah. So you'll have people with two homes. It's like, oh, in the hot months, I'm going to leave the Northern hemisphere and go to the Southern hemisphere. And then in, in the Southern months, I'm, you know, when it starts to get to be summer, I'll just go back up to the North. That sounds like a nice budget. Yeah. It sounds like a, I think it sounds like a sci-fi movie, <laughs> yeah. some sort of like future novel. Yeah. You're welcome to whoever is listening. <laughs> but it's like, if you don't have that option, then you're just stuck in the summer. But right. I think like one of the future status symbols is like, Oh, I can buy real estate in the mountains in two different poles and just like, you know, because we're all going to be like microchipped by that point and like what, you know, internet and everything else yeah. that you're just going to be able to live a bi a bipolar existence. <laughs> <laughs> Am I crazy? Does that sound, that sounds like the, like that because people don't want to be inconvenienced, right? They're rich. They want things how they want things. They're not going to want to be in 120 degree heat. Yeah. You know, I guess some people do out in Palm Springs or whatever, but fuck that. Like most people, it's like, I'm not going to broil. I'm going to go to where it's nice. Yeah. I... Yeah. We're all fucked, man. And like, I think about the disenfranchised folks of, uh, the folks that get left behind when everyone else moves. Yeah. It's just going to get hotter. Like you said. Sorry, I spaced out over there. That's all right. I mean, it's like, it's a lot to process. Um, and you know, I don't have all the answers, but it's just like, it's been in the news lately. So I think it's on my mind. Yeah. 
Um, so you're off to San Francisco next. Yes. And then it's back to Seattle and it's back to your routine. Yeah. And you have like three books going. Yeah. I think just, um, three projects, maybe two, maybe one. I mean, I think I'm just going to focus on the new novel now, but it's like, I like having a balance of things. And what is your, do you have like a, a strict regimen? Like do you write every day? You know, I used to like, I used to be a big proponent of the writing everyday thing. I still try to aim for it, but I also try to forgive myself if I can't do it. I've learned that that's also really valuable as well. Um, but yeah, I try to put in a little half hour each day. It's very similar to my running. Like if I can do that, it's usually one or the other. At like a half hour, you said? Half hour to an hour. Um, if I'm having a really good day, two hours. And then you can get books done that way. Eventually, yeah, little by little each day. Why? But why? Is it because that's as much attention like that's the limits of your attention span and your energies or is it because of just work stuff and i usually work like uh, i also work a full-time job so it's usually just because that's usually how much time i can cram into my day so you're teaching is that what it is or i'm teaching i'm also um yeah i teach for hugo house and catapult online and i also um i work like a, i work accounts receivable at a at a bookstore which bookstore the university bookstore um in seattle oh okay yeah they're wonderful folks that's good yeah I mean, you're, you're kind of around it. Yeah. Yeah. But I like doing the numbers side of it, uh, kind of balance things out. I don't like taking anything home, which is really nice. And what about, uh, reading? Like, do you have like a heavy reading diet? Do you make like actual time for that? You know, my last year I do. My last year is probably my worst reading year. Um, but I've been trying to bring the count back up. I try to average like, I think, uh, Mary Rufel once said she reads about a book a week. I try to do that like a book a week, but sometimes that can be hard. I try to average about a book a week. That's good. Yeah. That's healthy. I try for it. It doesn't always happen, but yeah. I always try to have a new book in the bag. And what about movie? I mean, like if you draw so much inspiration from, um, like music and movies, like have you ever, do you ever dabble in screenwriting? Are you going to drop an album anytime soon? <laughs> Richard's uh, dance album is coming out. I do love dancing. Um, wait, you do? Yeah, I, lo I love dancing. Like, will you go out dancing? Uh, I don't actively do. I think more if someone invites me, I take up the opportunity. But um, are you good? I could I could cut a rug. Okay, yeah, I don't cut know. a little rug. But like, do you have the abandon? Because <laughs> I like that's one, a great question. Yes. Yeah, because it's like it's not about necessarily like are your moves like textbook and like do you look like somebody in a music video? It's like do you have the ability to? Well, I feel go? I feel the beat. Yeah, you have to feel the beat. Oh, man. Yeah, let loose, man. I don't feel the beat. <laughs> let loose. You're thinking too much. I know. Don't think, just feel the beat. Fuck. But yeah, that's why I love dancing. It's one of the moments where I just don't care. Um, How often are you doing this? You know, like in my bedroom. Not, uh, But then on occasion, I do go out with friends. Um, there's not a lot of s spots in Seattle for that, but maybe I'll go out when I'm, once I'm here in L.A. There's places to dance. There's some clubs. Yeah. I haven't. I don't. Wouldn't be able to tell you where they are, but I know they exist. Um, well, it's good to see you. Thank you, Brad. I mean, Thanks. this is the first time we met in person, right? First time we met in person, yeah. Um, but the second time we've talked on this show. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, sir. Best of luck on the other myriad mm -hmm. projects you have going. Thank you so much for having me on here. It's a big honor. All right, everybody. That's Richard Chim. His new novel is called King of Joy. It's available from Soft Skull Press. You can find him online at richardchim.com. You can follow him on Twitter. His handle over there is at Gigantica Novel. 
Richard Chim. The novel, again, is King of Joy. Go get your copy right now. It's available from Soft Skull. Go get it. Thanks to uh, Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music, as always. Thank you to Tiger and My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. That's letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. If you would like to support this program, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. You can tip your server if the uh, if you are moved to do so. Don't forget about the Other People app. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. Go check it out. It's free. It's a free app. It's a great way to listen. So, uh, my kids are on spring break. That's always fun. It's like a preview of summer. I feel like the chaos level is higher than usual. My sisters were both in town. I was out of town for a few days. I'm catching up. But uh, the podcast rolls on. I've got some good episodes coming up next week on the program. What do I have for you? Ooh, this is interesting. I have uh, Lori Gottlieb. And uh, she's got a book called Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. She's a therapist who has written a book about uh, being a therapist and also being in therapy. So we had a good talk. Very interesting and uh, stay tuned for that. Otherwise, I think uh, that's it. (laughs) 